when science meets narrative, we have a problem because both don't exist simultaneously. Because science is, well, here's what the facts tell us. A narrative is here's what we want people to be told. So the only way these two things can exist is if they don't exist together. And therefore, either the narrative is suspended so the truth can be told, or the truth is in some ways muted so a narrative can take hold. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, Parlor, Instagram, Twitter, at Tony Katz. This is so much of what we've experienced regarding COVID, regarding masks, regarding what we know about what leaked from a lab or didn't leak from a lab. Just the actual conversation, even if we have different conclusions, has been prevented from getting to us. And then there is the idea that some have sat on data to keep us from getting access to it. Dr. Marty McCarry joins me right now, a professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, over 250 scientific articles on the redesign of healthcare, medical innovation, and vulnerable populations. He is also the author of the new book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. And he's also somebody who has spoken out very, very directly about where we can be in COVID, feeling that we could have herd immunity. I mean, as he talked about it back in February, we could have herd immunity in April. So where are we now? And has also been discussing the CDC sitting on data to suit their narrative. Dr. McCarry joins us right now. Before we get into some of the things about the CDC, and before we get into some of the things about healthcare in, in, in general, your view, where you sit, your expertise, taking a look at COVID, taking a look at the vaccines that are out there, taking a look at what really happens to the mass of the population, where is the United States when it comes to COVID and these variants right now, and what does the future look like to you? Tony, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. You know, we're doing really well. As a matter of fact, there's really no pandemic among adults in the United States. It's a pseudo pandemic at this point. We're picking up cases in asymptomatic people as a part of routine screening. We're, uh, we're, we're testing people already immune, looking for remnant particles that cause no illness and is not transmissible. There still is some COVID, but it's circulating in younger populations, and it's circulating at a rate about 150th the daily case rate of seasonal flu during a flu season. So we're doing really well. Now, some people want this pandemic to keep going for a couple more years, and you can change the numbers and massage them to make it uh, look like uh, we'll, we'll be in a state of emergency forever. That's, I mean, when, when you hear things like that, and certainly I have uh, noticed that there are some people politically who seem to want that idea, but when you say that from, from the medical point of view, who are the people that you're referring to? Who is it that you see would like to keep America in a state of this crisis? And as you see it, why? Well, I don't know exactly who they are, but I can tell you when I wrote the piece in the Wall Street Journal back in February saying we'd have herd immunity in April or May, and and we're basically there. For herd immunity is not eradication. It means that the virus has a really tough time jumping around in a community, and that's where, where we've been for well over a month now. 80 to 85 percent of adults in America are immune. 
because we've got vaccinated immunity and natural immunity. So um, what I was told by members of Congress after I wrote that piece saying, hey, we'll be mostly done with this pandemic by the end of the spring and time for a normal summer. They said, what you may not know is there's the largest spending bill in history on the Senate floor arguing that it needs to be passed because of COVID. And you just basically shattered that whole um, you know, rationale. And that's what I didn't realize is that there's a lot of politics around the, the data. Talking to Dr. Marty McCarry uh, from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. But we see this in other places, this this idea of politics. And really what I would, would argue is the erring on the side of fear. In Indianapolis, where, where I live, Marion County, right? Indianapolis being the capital of Indiana, Marion County being that county. They want to see 50% of the county vaccinated. And therefore, the mask mandate could completely uh, go away and you could get to full occupancy in in uh, stadiums or in, in, in theaters, things like that. But we have other places that are already at full occupancy for outdoors, uh, for, for example. So is there something to be said for erring on the side of caution or is this, as you see it, a fear play? Well, we're going to have bacterial meningitis and tuberculosis and influenza and all kinds of stuff for for years to come. We can't freeze society. You may have seen the reports from the CDC last Friday that suicide attempts among teenage girls were up 50 percent in one month just several months ago. So we've got to move on. At this point, if you are at risk, you're at risk at your own discretion. It's not because of society being open. It's because you've had the vaccine available and you've chosen not to get it and you haven't had immunity from natural immunity. So if you do stuff and you're at risk, you're at risk at your own discretion. Society cannot wait for you to decide whether or not they're going to protect you by keeping things shut down because the collateral damage is too great. That brings us into what has been the great debate and certainly a debate for for children regarding masks and whether or not masks are effective. And then we see the 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 leak. I shouldn't even say it's a leak. It was the FOIA request of Dr. Anthony Fauci's emails and this conversation uh, uh, about masks and their effectiveness. It seems that the science shows us that the the that covid SARS-CoV-2 is simply too small, that the masks that we have are not going to stop it. So why do do we continue to wear the mask or do I have the science all wrong? Well, Tony Fauci, he's had a tough week. He had a bad week last week. There's been a lot of evidence that we've been, you know, we've been getting bad information from him. And look, he, he hedged his bet. He thought this was going to be like SARS-1 and not be very bad. And he got it wrong. And then he got masks wrong initially. Masks, in my opinion, were a good way to to have a semi-open society throughout the entire pandemic. That's why I wrote way back in the spring of last year, at the beginning of the pandemic, that we need to have universal masking until the rates get low. And now we're there for us to take off the masks. We've always said when we're below 10 cases per 100,000, we get back to normal. Even the great Dr. Fauci has said that. Well, we're there. We're at two or three cases per 100,000, well below that threshold. We can't keep moving the goalposts. We've got to remove these restrictions as aggressively as we put them into place in order to preserve the credibility of our great medical profession.
The credibility conversation, I think, is a part of what you get into in your book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It, talking to Dr. Marty Macari right now of Johns Hopkins. And some of the things you talk about in, in the book are, are about the, the, the pricing, uh, how we view healthcare, and how we need to view it. I believe that so much of what we've seen in COVID has created a an absolute, it's not a fear factor, but there's a lack of faith. If you point to me, the people who still have faith in Dr. Fauci, I will say to you, my gosh, that's a very small subset of society. The vast majority of society has little faith. And when they get medical information from their news outlets, I believe they also have little faith. So when you take a look at healthcare, is it about faith? In doctors is about faith in the science or is it still about simple fixes cost wise and otherwise that can make people believe again well i think dr fauci like he's a nice man like i said he's had a bad week or bad bad year and a half um funding the lab that leaked the virus was not a good revelation for the public to learn about people have a right to be upset the thing is He's one man. He's one doctor, and you get one opinion from one doctor. I don't know whether or not to blame him or CNN and Meet the Press and all these networks that ran him incessantly as the only voice giving him a title that they fabricated, which is the nation's top infectious diseases doctor. He's not. He's not the nation's top. The nation's top infectious diseases doctor does not work for the United States federal government. Trust me. And they gave him this title, and they made it sound like we're hearing from Moses, who just came down with the Ten Commandments. Guess what? There's other opinions. Many of us have had other opinions, and we didn't hear those opinions. We couldn't compete with Dr. Fauci on the media 12 hours a day. I mean, I go on Fox once a day or so. I'll do a call or two. But I'm busy doing public health research on COVID. What's Dr. Fauci doing? I'll get a request from a podcast And my staff will tell me, Marty, this podcast is not worth your time. It only has two reviews on iTunes and 20 downloads. And we're going to decline it for you. And then then I'll, I'll see Dr. Fauci was on it. And I'm thinking this guy needs to get back to work and voluntarily suspend himself from all of this media circuit. The book, The Price We Pay. I would like, I wanted your thoughts on... What is broken? What are the two things you can point to right now that are broken, and how easy are those fixes? Those two things, let me tell you, are two um, things that we are very fixable. Number one, it's pricing failures. It's a joke. You can't go to a hospital and get a price. It's a joke. When you go to a clinic, you get a surprise bill, even after asking how much something costs. We can fix that, and we are fixing that. We got an executive order signed by Trump. It was a bipartisan executive order, and I was uh, wor- I worked on it with uh, folks, I'm, I'm proud to say. And it will require hospitals to disclose real cash prices for common services. That's starting to change. It will converting non-competitive markets to competitive markets. And briefly, the other thing is the appropriateness of care. We've got to start tackling the underlying issues, which means – we got to start treating more diabetes with cooking classes than just throwing insulin at people. And we got to treat more back pain with physical therapy and ice than just surgery and opioids. This is the revolution, recognizing food is medicine and we can do better. We can 
talk about the environmental exposures that cause cancer instead of just the chemotherapy protocols to treat it. This is the revolution, and I explain in the book how people can navigate the system and be a part of this revolution. Well, if we're going to make it that easy, if we're going to make it that simple. But, you know, I have often discussed on the show that the the idea of insurance, which didn't exist until uh, the, the Great Depression as a way of keeping hospitals uh, afloat, is part of the problem. We don't treat the doctor like we treat the, the auto mechanic. You have an issue, you pay cash, you get the issue uh, cared for. I believe that that's a system that can work and we haven't even tried. Uh, is, is this part of what can fix uh, American health? Healthcare and what's broken? Well, insurance is turning into just catastrophic coverage. It's really not insurance. And let's call it spade a spade. It's not health insurance, it's sickness insurance. And you're really now responsible for like all the expenses yourself. And people have a right to be upset right now. About half of federal spending goes to health care. People are paying $20,000 a year for health insurance for a household. Most of it comes from the employer side, but really that's your money. It comes from wages. And then you're told your bills are not covered, your deductible's too high. People have a right to be angry. Price gouging and predatory billing has become adopted as a standard business practice. And we as doctors and nurses have to stand against it. These are our patients, our services, and this violates the great public trust in the medical profession. The book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Dr. Marty McCarry uh, from Johns Hopkins, I appreciate you taking the time. I hope we get the chance to speak again in the near future. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So Republicans pick up minority voters in 2020. So, of course, the Washington Post has to write a piece saying that the GOP is on a racist course. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's great to be with you. It is these kinds of things that we notice and say this isn't real. And this is why we look at these journalists and say, what, what is your purpose? Why should we trust you? What a thing to say. There's a piece from Perry Bacon Jr., It's called, Were Biden's Bold First 100 Days a Mirage? Saying that the biggest parts of Biden's progressive agenda may already be behind him because of gridlock on Capitol Hill. What his argument is, is that don't return to normal. You can't have bipartisanship with these filthy Republican animals. He writes, I understand the instinct to try and bring the country together and focus on the future, but normal is over. The Republican Party is on an anti-democratic, racist course, and Biden and the Democrats have to accept that the Republicans have basically thrust them into a partisan, uncivil war. They have to fight and win that war instead of wishing it away. Funny, I believe Republicans in many ways have to do the same thing. I think I make a stronger argument, though, that the anti-democratic racist course comes from the political left, not the political right. I think I can prove that. I think I have proved that time and again. And I believe Democrats are in a partisan uncivil war, not only with Republicans or conservatives or independents or moderates or just plain old folk, as they say in the biz, but with themselves. 
You can have the anti-Semitism of Ilhan Omar and you won't say anything about it. Yeah, America notices and they think you kind of suck. But this idea, this anti-democratic course, your argument is that Republicans won't say, my gosh, Donald Trump incited an insurrection. They don't agree. I think the anti-democratic course is you're not allowed to use certain pronouns. You have to use certain pronouns. You're not allowed to use certain words. You have to use certain words. Which one is more anti-democratic? Amongst rational people, how have I not won that argument, if you will? But how often do we see this idea that the left is willing to say out loud, what are you negotiating with these fakakta crazy people for? Just go out there and win. There's a lesson in that. I, it's not that I want it to be that way. Right? I believe you should win on the merits. But if you've won elections, you've won on the merits. Whether they, people like it or not, now go out there and win. This is why I write, and you can find it at TonyCats.com, about the, how Congress should expel Ilhan Omar. When you hear this anti-Semite bigot compare the United States to Hamas, you're not supposed to censure her. You're supposed to walk into Nancy Pelosi's office, a couple of hundred of you, and demand she be expelled. What are Republicans doing? You can't get these Democrats to like you. They hate your guts. You want to know how much the political left hates you? Maya Wiley is a uh, mayoral candidate in New York. And she was asked during a Democratic uh, mayoral debate uh, about police officers and firearms. And she would not say if she would let New York City cops keep their guns. When asked by Marsha Kramer of the local CBS there, will you take the guns away from them? She wouldn't answer and eventually said, I am not prepared to make that decision in a debate. So now picture New York City with no guns for the police officers who are trying to keep the peace. Then let's go back to the question of who's on the anti-democratic course and who do you think is more hurt when law enforcement can't actually enforce laws? Now who's on the more racist course? I mean, this was just child's play michael wall she's the author of the fiery angel talking about culture in the republican party we speak with him next i'm tony katz it's very obvious that when we discuss culture we clearly have it correct that in order to win well, whatever it is you want to win, in order to move a, a message, an idea, a thought, you have to capture some level of culture. Isn't this how these ideas are like, where in the world did this come from? Where did critical race theory come from? Where did this come from? Where did that come from? It's been happening in academia for 30 years. But we ceded academia to the left. Oh, those are teachers. Oh, you don't want to be a teacher. You want to be a professional. Well, the teachers were the ones who were able to teach your kids who became professionals how to be these radicals, and that's why it's in so many places. That's why for so many people, none of this is a surprise. For those people who have been studying Marxism and what it means to manipulate 
in this way. Not only is none of this a surprise, this has been talked about again and again and again and again. Tony Katz, great to be with you on Tony Katz today. You have the book, The Fiery Angel. Art, culture, sex, politics, and the struggle for the soul of the West. Uh, The Devil's Pleasure Palace. The Cult of Critical Theory and the Subversion of the West. These are just two of the many books by Michael Walsh, who joins us right now. Uh, The author, the columnist, uh, the screenwriter. The latest book, Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All is Lost, available at Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold. But it was the piece in the epic times, Michael. That made me say, hey, let us uh, have ourselves a conversation. And the piece in the Epic Times involves the idea of the counter-counter-revolution. And your belief or your writing and utilizing the style that in order to stage a counter-counter-revolution, the Republicans must learn from Lenin and not John Lennon. So first, Michael Walsh, always good to have you. Uh, Let us start with your viewpoint here. When you start with asking a famous question from Lenin, what is to be done? What is the argument that you're making and what is it you're trying to teach the Republican Party? Well, hi, Tony. It's good to be on with you again. As well, uh, as it happened, I, I'm just let me, by way of prefacing, say that uh, Last Dance has been such a success, thanks to you and all of the readers out there, that St. Martin's Press has uh, asked me to write the sequel, has commissioned me to write the sequel. So there'll be another book on the nature of manhood and these great history-changing fights that determine the course of all of our lives. And in the course of researching that now, I came across Lenin's book, What is to be Done, which he wrote in 1902, and I alluded to that in my piece in the Epic Times today. So basically what Lenin was saying is, it's not enough to wait for the masses to come to you and understand that what you've been trying to tell them is correct. Lenin said we have to create a party that will force them to accept what we are telling them. And in this way, the communist revolution was precipitated by less than 1% of the population of what became the Soviet Union. And yet that lasted for 75 years because Lenin and his compatriots had the foresight and the force of will and the messaging discipline to turn the country from a czarist monarchy into briefly a socialist, quasi-democratic revolution, uh, that's the February Revolution of 1917, into a communist country by October of 17. Republicans have got to stop waiting for the message to be self-evident. We must seize control of this party and force that message, because the Democrats have done that. They have turned from the party of Hubert Humphrey in 1968, and I'm old enough to remember all this, into the party of George McGovern in 1972. That was just four years. And you now have the party of George McGovern in all of its grotesque glory. So I pointed out that Lenin wrote this book in 1902. By 1922, he was the chairman of the of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. 20 years was all it took. It's taken the Democrats a little bit longer, but now they are right on the verge of of destroying 
the country is founded. And if we don't wake up pretty soon, we're not going to have it anymore. So let's take a step back and make sure we're all on the same page. You are not making the argument for communism. Rather, you're making the argument for we have principles, conservatives, even more so than Republicans, as as I see it, as I discuss it, have principles and values that make everybody's life better. What are we doing in, in, in sharing that message? So the question to you is, how do you share that message and what specifically do you believe is the message the republican party fails to get out and must well let's start with how do you share it as you know Tony, you have been for a long time i wrote a book in 2010 called rules for radical conservatives which laid out in in a kind of uh, uh c.s lewis like fashion uh, what the conservatives needed to do, written by my then alter ego, David Kahane, who was a leftist lunatic uh, commie uh, screenwriter in California. So I laid out all the principles. That's 11 years ago now. Uh, and yet I read constantly, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Who's going to lead us? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, look, all writers can do is write. That's what we do. Um, if people read it, they need to act on it. So what are, we act, what are we asking them to act on? I'll give you something very basic, and I said this in that book 11 years ago. Principles, not programs. Every time you accept a premise from the left, every time you argue about some crazy policy position that they want to implement and you attack it on the grounds of policy, you lose. You have to reject the premises of their argument. You have to assume they are not arguing in good faith, which is clear from the historical record. And you must articulate your own fundamental principles. Now, we can disagree a little bit on those, not much, I think, but we need to formulate a real manifesto. I mean, I learn from the left all the time. I live in the world of the left. I've worked my entire career in journalism at the top of the heap at Time Magazine in, in publishing in New York City, in Hollywood. So I know how they think. And guess what? They're not stupid. They're very effective. And we just do not have the discipline to compete with them at this point. So I have invoked the monster himself, Satan's child, Lenin, uh, as a good example of maybe we ought to follow that lead. Talking to Michael Walsh, the latest book, Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All Is Lost. You can get that at Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold. The piece we're referring to over at Epic Times, to stage the counter-counter-revolution, GOP must learn from Lenin. You brought something up people may not know about you. You were a music critic at Time Magazine. And every now and then you'll post something on your Facebook page, you'll post an aria, you'll post a a piece, this, this I love, I think this is, 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 is underrated. And I often discuss art and the value of art in, in society and how it moves a, a message and that what we are seeing from the political left in art, whether you talk about it in cancel culture, whether you talk about it in terms of the things that they portray uh, out there, is this very belief and idea of nihilism. This idea of nothingness as somehow an, an ascendant and, and, and a needed exalted value. Is it their push to nihilism that creates for the political right their opportunity to create something and push something of value? Well, I don't know the answer to that question, uh, but I can tell you this about nihilism, which ties in with the current argument about critical theory. As you mentioned, you were kind enough to mention my books, Devil's Pleasure Palace and Fiery Angel. Both of those 
use works of art as tools to examine the political changes that the left is trying to force upon us. This is my area of expertise, and I think it's some original work that I've done here. But people often ask me, okay, what's critical theory? And I say, everything needs to be wrecked. That's it. That's critical theory. You want to know what it is? That's what it is. And then our side, because we're stupid, says, yeah, but then what happens? And as you know, the answer is nothing. Nothing. The wrecking is the point. So, for example, with critical race theory, let's assume, for example, that they completely disestablish whiteness and, and, and hunt us down and, and, and destroy everything. Will there then be a world in which people of color and other minorities live happily ever after, just taking over the civilization? No, there won't be. They don't care about that. They don't care about people of color. They don't care about minorities. They care about one thing, which is destruction. That's it. It's really simple. And maybe it's too simple for us dummies to grasp, but it's the truth. We have discussed on this show, talking to Michael Walsh, uh, author of The Devil's Pleasure Palace, uh, author of Fiery Angel, and author of Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All is Lost, that when we talk about Black Lives Matter and we talk about Antifa, Antifa doesn't have uh, something that they're working towards. They're not anti-fascist. They are fascists, and what they want to do is exactly what you're discussing. They want to burn it all down. They don't see anything past that they simply want to burn it all down what i am asking is is that so much of what we see right now like there there was a piece that that i was discussing that shows uh i was looking at gun violence right gun violence is through the roof but that Mm -hmm. the, the very term gun violence makes you think the gun is the problem and the gun is not the problem because there are plenty of lawful gun owners out there rather it is this thing underneath this the the what moves people to the violence and so much of that is when and you take away some concepts, some standards, some core, some morality, some some value system that exists, and that in and of itself is the purpose of Marxism, is to remove those value systems. So the question I ask you is, when you talk about a, a principle, is that to recreate a value system to give people some some idea of a core, make them feel like they have a, a worthiness in this life and therefore get them on a better road? Or is it something else? No, it's exactly that. Now, you can call it religion. I think the loss of faith in the West has been uh, severely debilitating, and it was also quite intentional. Uh, you can help them reestablish and reconnect with their own culture, which I've done, I hope, in Devil and Angel, to show these great works of art, which emerged from our Western civilization, are important moral and spiritual touchstones. You mentioned music. I use music a lot when I write, Tony. I use it when I'm thinking. Uh, it, it moves us on a nonverbal plane. And it helps us understand there are some things more important than buying flat screen TVs from Walmart, from China, which apparently is the only value now that some elements of the conservative movement allegedly uh, prize. We've got to put Buckleyism in the ground. And I say this as someone who wrote for National Review and who admired the works of William F. Buckley, but they are not relevant to today. And the idea that we stand athwart history yelling stop is not good enough when you're up against a bulldozer like Lenin, like the Soviet Union, and like its 
fresh incarnation, incarnations in the European Union and in American far-left communism. Uh, you're up against a true dedicated monster who does not share your values. And until you realize that, you're going to keep losing. His name is Michael Walsh. My advice to you is check out the piece over at the Epic Times, E-P-O-C-H, the Epic Times, uh, dot com right there. And the latest book, Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All Is Lost, available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. Michael, it's always a pleasure. We're going to discuss more of this in the days and weeks ahead. More to come. I'm Tony Katz. So the Biden administration, via the Department of Justice, asking the Supreme Court to overturn a lower court ruling and reinstate the death penalty for Zokar Sarnev, the Boston Marathon bomber. Tony Katz, it's good to be with you. And holy cow, you have found something that some people are going to be like, I agree with Joe Biden on this. According to the DOJ, in their brief, the Court of Appeals improperly vacated the capital sentences recommended by the jury in one of the most important terrorism prosecutions in our nation. This court should reverse the decision below and put this case back on track toward a just conclusion. Uh, okay. Now, I got to tell you, I have... Um in, in most cases been turned uh, and, and have a, a near full opposition to the death penalty. My opposition does not come from a place of, well, it's wrong to take a life because I can agree with such a thing, but that is not my opposition to the death penalty. My opposition comes from the idea that there are cases where we take a life and then it turns out we were wrong. And I don't know how one is supposed to live with oneself when that happens. I don't know how you're supposed to uh, do that. I don't know how you're supposed to exist like that. That is not something you're allowed to get wrong. So I, there is no level of, of DNA testing or anything else that I am not in favor of before going down this road it is imperative that we do so and when there are cases where that isn't done nope 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 not not me i I don't want any part of it i absolutely do not want any part of it at all so i i i stand totally opposed but i think it's interesting i think that biden's gonna get a lot of people you know, uh, cheer, cheering uh, that decision, as opposed to cheering this answer uh, over there at the G7 when asked about Vladimir Putin, who he's meeting with tomorrow. What do you say to Vladimir Putin? <laughs> answer the first question. <laughs> I'm laughing too. They actually, I. Uh... Well, look. I mean, he has made clear that. Uh, uh, I want to be sure you know I didn't pause the tape. He goes to answer the question, and he just 
loses the track. Total silence. Well, look, I mean, he has made clear that... uh, One, uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The answer is, I believe he has in the past essentially acknowledged that he was... uh, There are certain things... It's the way it is. I'm Tony Katz.